This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. According to internationally best-selling author David Baldacci, when you've written as many books as he has, 10 series or a total of 30 books and counting, and another 12 standalone novels, there is one way to keep your writing razor sharp. Start from square one. Create a new character, a new series, and a new world. With his latest novel, Long Road to Mercy, Baldacci has done just that. His new protagonist, female FBI agent Atlee Pine, must cover a desolate far west outpost on her own. And although its size is intimidating, it includes the Grand Canyon National Park, Atlee is strongly motivated to succeed. She sees it as a way to avenge the tragic death of her twin sister, Mercy, who was abducted by a serial killer when the girls were only six years old. David and I talked about his process in creating new, complex characters and weaving real-time geopolitical incidents into a heart-pounding plot. I love Atlee Pine. When I got to the part where it all came together and it all gelled and we knew what was happening, I was like, good, the lead-up paid it off. Totally paid it off. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You, you always try for that. You never know, you know, whether you hit it or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, I mean, I was there, and I loved the whole thing. I was like, oh, my God, I got to, you know, I couldn't put it down, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but I, I have to say, she's quite a departure um, from uh, your Amos Decker uh, series. Um, yes. How did, you, how did you come up with her, and, and why did you come up with her? You know, I've been... <laughs> When you've written as many books as I have, it really becomes a question of motivation and keep you energized and fresh. And the way to do that sometimes is to, you know, start from square one and create a new character, a new series, a brand new world, put her in a place I hadn't written about before in the southwest United States. So it really made me get out of my comfort zone and challenge me to just, you know, make pretend it was my first novel again. Um, and she was a fascinating character. I had the name Atlee Pine in my head. Pretty early on, Atlee is an old Southern name. It could be either a boy or a girl. And I grew up in Richmond, and right outside of Richmond, there's a place called Atlee, and there's a high school, Atlee High School. In fact, when you go down the interstate and you turn off in an exit where my parents used to live, you went to the right, you went to their house, you went to the left, you went to Atlee. Uh-huh. Um, I've always liked that name. It's just unusual. So, well, I liked it too because it sets her apart from from any other heroine I've run into. So, uh, to me, that was like, great, you made her an individual immediately with that. Yes. I also love the fact that she is a kick-ass female protagonist. And I know that you have, you know, in your Roby and Real series, I mean, you know, Jessica is is no sloth. (laughs) (laughs) But you, there are stark differences between them. Yeah, there are. I think that, you know, with Atlee, she, you know, had the goal of wanting to join the FBI and work in the FBI. And that is traditionally a man's field. It's gotten better, but it's still majority male. Um, so she really had to build herself up in many ways. I mean, she was a weightlifter in college, probably with a mind that she really wanted to go into law enforcement. So physically, mentally, emotionally, she had to prepare herself to enter this you know, this minefield of male domination, and not only uh, succeed and do her job, but she wanted to thrive there. And it's like any other situation like that where a woman goes in and they have to work twice as hard and twice as long to get to the same level as a man. That's just the way it's set up, unfortunately. Uh, but that was her goal. And for me, I think, you know, with the, tra- the tragic loss of her sister when they were young, her twin, she was 
she's leading two lives, one for herself and one for her sister who never had the opportunity to realize her potential and her ambitions and her dreams. Um, and secondly, she never got justice with her sister. She has no idea what even happened to her. Never had justice, resolution, or closure. So joining the FBI allows her to achieve all of those things with other people. Um, and that's really the only way that I think that she can keep going, um, hoping one day that she's going to realize those things for herself. But until then, at least helping other people get them. Right, and I also noticed, um, I mean, you, you had her fully drawn from the very first scene, you know, her meeting with, uh, you know, Tor, the one nemesis of her life, the, the thing she's been building toward is finding uh, what happened to her sister, who, um, which I think is uh, was a wonderful story. I, I live in, in the Bay Area. Uh, we had the poly class situation here where a girl was taken out of her bedroom. Yes. I don't know if you yes. were aware of that, but it was, uh, it was a big, big thing. It was a very big thing. I was aware of it. And, um, and in her confrontation with Tor at, at the Supermax prison, you know, one of her, one of his taunts that they had homed her was that, you know, he declared that he had defined her life. And uh, he was thrilled by that because they gave him a semblance of control. I don't think Atlee would see it the very same way. Um, but I think she does understand that, you know, the past uh, loss has defined her son and has left its mark. She's, she's human, just like anybody else. There's no way around that. You can't just uh, completely blank that from your mind. But what she has to do is learn to live with it that she can move forward in a productive way and do her job at the same time. Right. Um, I also love the fact that, you know, her backstory is also her now story, what's happening in real time with her. And you've, you've created a great cast of characters around her. I was particularly touched with her relationship um, with Stark and how he brought her out of herself. And I, I, how did you come up with him? He was, he was a wonderful um, tool to do that, but also I just felt him on the page and he wasn't, you know, as, you, as we find out, he's deceased. Right. Um, you know, for me it was important with Atlee, who had lost her father, you know, he had committed suicide on their birthdays. And was really not a, a wonderful father. He had a lot of issues and problems. So um, in the FBI, there is a lot of mentoring that goes on between agents. Some agents are better at than others. What I really wanted in, in uh, Stark's uh, character was a pseudo father figure for her, someone that she could spend time with because she was a loner. She doesn't. She's not. A, she's an, she's an introvert. She doesn't really like being around people. Even though in her job, it demands her to build consensus and work with other people, which she does. But she doesn't give herself away very easily. She doesn't get into personal stuff with anyone. So with Stark, you know, building that car was kind of a metaphor for building a relationship by two people coming together and creating something that was lasting and significant and memorable. So it could have been anything. I, I chose this car because the car was kind of a neat thing to work on. And uh, putting back together an old car like that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of teamwork. And you learn something about somebody along the way. And I think it was kind of a test for Atlee from Stark was, you know, does she have, does she have what it takes to succeed in the FBI? Does she have what it takes to work on the project long term, to work with somebody else as a teammate? Um, and she passed all those tests with flying colors. But really it was, she it gave her sort of a pseudo father figure uh, that she could feel close to and that she'd accomplish something and someone she could rely on. Um, and it was very important. And even though, you know, we really didn't see him in the novel other than her flashbacks and recollections. Um, the way she turned out, you know, was in due in small measure, certainly, to her relationship with, uh, you know, the former Special Agent Stark. Right. 
I mean, that, that to me was, um, I love the way even how the car played such a role in the whole yes. caper, the chase, you know, uh, it really pulled everything together. She had him beside her in that sense of the word, too. Yeah, she did. You know, the car for her represented a lot of different things. And uh, it's, it was a neat car for them to use. You know, I, I call it their Thumb and Louise exploits. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it was symbolic as well. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to see that Mustang in future books. <laughs> good, good. I, I have to, now that you mentioned Thumb and Louise, Carol Blum, great uh, sidekick character. Um, I like the fact that, you know, she's middle-aged, she's sort of matronly, that she has six grown kids, and that, you know, she's been, but she's been at the FBI for so long as an assistant. Um, Where did you, where did you find Carol? (laughs) I know, I, when I was thinking about, okay, what kind of relationship would be good and productive for Atlee, and much like Starks is a father figure, you know, she didn't have a great relationship with her mother either, so in steps Carol Blum. And is sort of a pseudo mother figure to her, someone who is um, productive, who is smart, uh, who has seen a lot in life. You know, she's raised six kids. I mean, that's a Herculean effort in and of itself. And you have to have a, be clever and everything else to get through something like that, particularly as a single mom as she was. Um, and I like the idea that in most thrillers, you'll see it's either a guy with the action, or a guy and a girl, or two guys. It's almost never two women, and certainly not two women you know, of different generations. You just don't see that. So there was a way for me to challenge myself. Can I write this relationship realistically um, and do it well so that these characters evolve and grow um, and, you know, become more important to each other in the course of the book? Uh, and that's what I was trying to do with, with Adelaide and Carol Blum. And I just loved her character. By the time I got to the end of the book, when I first started out, I didn't know, okay, she's just going to be a secretary and she'll be in it for a little bit, you know, comedic timing or is she going to play a significant role? And then as I kept writing Carol on the page, more and more stuff came out of possibilities of what I could do with her character. And so by, you know, a quarter of the way through the book, I was like, okay, you know, she's going to be, she's going to be a star in this book. Uh, she's not going to be as equal as Adelaide, but uh, she's going to be in this whole thing and she's going to be a major source uh, of help to her, and you could see that with some of the things that she did. She went out to you know to the lunch with the with the uh, wife of the guy he was missing, and right. the way that she just drew on her sort of her maternal instincts and also her life experiences to gain the woman's trust and and to do what she did. Um, she's a valuable valuable tool and ally and partner for Allie. Right, and and uh, you know it's almost like she kind of missed her time as far as when she came into the, to the FBI world. Right, because it would have been, back then it would have been almost impossible. I don't, I don't know when the first special agent was who was female at the FBI, but, you know, back in the, during Carol Blum's prime time when she would have been an agent, it couldn't have been all that many. But that's okay, because, you know, even though she didn't have any special training, she had a lot of experiences in life training, and, you know, she could do a lot. When I wrote that scene where, um, you know, there were two holes in the wall in Atlee's office, yes. where a guy had thrown a fist, and then one where Atlee thrown the guy, and then when she had the office redone, and Carol's suggestion was to, you know, keep the two dense because a picture is worth more than a thousand words. I was like, I love this woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when our characters become us or vice versa, when we become our character. <laughs> I, it is. I tell you, there's this connection that you can't, you can't break it. You did some wonderful descriptions of the Grand Canyon and of Arizona. And, you know, not just making the setting come to life. I mean, even the heat became a character in the book. 
It, it, it did. And when I went to visit the Grand Canyon last year, I found it mesmerizing, surreal, enormous, impressive, but also foreboding and forbidding. And um, it's it's unforgiving environment. And it's a challenge. If you want to, you know, go down and come back up, um, you really have to be respectful of the environment because otherwise it's going to kill you. And people die at the Grand Canyon every year because they don't respect it and they think they can do far more than they can. They think it's sort of a day in the park and what's the big deal. Uh, and they find out, you know, to their chagrin that it is quite a big deal. I wanted the Grand Canyon to be a character in the novel. I wanted to show the physicality of the challenge of surviving in a climate like that and moving up and down and through it. Um, and you saw some of that throughout the book, and then certainly towards the end, you saw a lot of what the challenge might be there. And, uh, you know, we live in the 21st century where there's an Uber on every corner. You know, you just have to dial it up on your phone, and there's every convenience is within, you know, a phone call away, uh, wherever we happen to be. But there are still a lot of places on Earth where none of that crap matters. And you could be in the middle of the Grand Canyon, and the last thing you want to have in your hand is a smartphone, because it's absolutely worthless to you. Uh, you would you would change them. You would exchange a thousand Apple iPhones for a bottle of water <laughs> right. down there, and and that just brings you back to you know sort of a, a I think a balance of life, not also the stark reality of so much of the stuff that we're surrounded by every day. At the end of the day, it seems cool, and yeah, we're used to it, and we rely on it and all that. But at the end of the day, in the grand scheme of things, it's you know forgettable and it's useless. It's really not all that important. Right. Right. Um, I also loved the way uh, you took geopolitics out of D.C. and every other, you know, metropolis in America, and you laid it right into a place where you would never expect it, really, a place where, I mean, you put it in the middle of nowhere. How did that come to you? Because, I mean, I, I really loved how all the players, all the players that you put in there, you had the North Koreans, you had the Russians, you had us. And that's right. that's it right there in a nutshell, except for China. I mean, right. you had them in there too, but in a I different know. way. I had to leave somebody, I had to leave somebody out, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that broom cupboard was getting crowded. Right, right. <laughs> I um, I'm I'm incredibly interested in geopolitics. I'm I'm a very political person. Um, you know, the, the midterms. Um, I was at a couple of victory parties, and it was uh, it was. Uh, it's just what drives, you know, the area that I live in, certainly probably to too much of an extent. But at the same time, I realize how important it is, depending on, you know, what the leadership is and the country, the direction the country's going in. It, it matters a lot. So this is, you know, as far as the, the geopolitical bent to this plot, uh, it's complicated in a way, but incredibly vastly simple in another way, if you look at it. And it's just shifting blame. And it's shifting blame in a way that will justify action later against someone. And this is not, you know, this is a fictional story, but we've, this has happened before in the past, um, where things have sort of been uh, taken and created out of nothing to use as justification to take action. Um, so I, I was daring anybody to say, oh, you know, this is totally implausible. I was going to give them like 11 different examples right. <laughs> where it happened in real life. Um, but I think it's important because in a novel like this, it's, I want to be entertaining. I want you to love the characters. I want you to have fun with the story. But I also want you to walk away from the from the from the novel, you know, feeling a little more informed than you were when you, before you opened it, and thinking to yourself, you know, it, it sounded far fetched. But let me think about this. Let me go read about stuff like this. Let me go look at the historical perspective and see what this guy's talking about. And then all of a sudden, you know, you then you have a much more comprehensive mosaic 
Um, historical context is invaluable, and that's why you know I I say that all all of our political readers should be you know should be required to be voracious readers. I mean, the founding fathers were all for the most part well-read, literate people. Um, And the only way I think you gain wisdom is through comprehensive learning, education, and understanding historical context. And the best way to do that is to read, obviously. Uh, That should be a requirement. So sometimes when that that is missing in leadership, um, mistakes are made that could have easily been avoided. And I just wanted people to understand in this novel, yeah, it's it's a thriller, it's fiction and all that. But with that said, it's entirely plausible. Right, right, and and um, your attention to detail to me was was exemplary. I uh, thoroughly appreciated that um, as as a writer myself. I also have to say I loved the North Korean operative character. I thought you had him really fully well drawn, and um, you know, I'm kind of disappointed we won't be seeing him again. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I didn't leave myself any wiggle room there, did I? No, no, but the beauty was in the execution, especially Atlee's execution. So I think it's something that readers will really appreciate from an action scene. Uh, yeah, I hope so. In that particular action scene at the end, um, for me, that's a classic way of slowing the action down. Uh, I could have written that scene in a paragraph and you know, had the same result. But the, I, wanted the, I wanted people to understand the raw, visceral, uh, plight that these two people were in. One of them was going to die. Uh, you just didn't know which one. But I wanted to see the struggle and the enormous amount of strength and perseverance that went into that scene and determine who was going to live and who was going to die. I didn't want it to be over fast. I wanted people to I wanted people to linger over it. So I let the pages go and let them, you know, keep going through those pages um, because at the end it had to have been worth it. You know, you take somebody's life. I want I want people to understand why. And, you know, there has to be a motivation. Um, I don't like I don't like stories where somebody just walks in and takes out a gun and shoots twelve people and then walks out and you never know why. So, it, killing someone is a personal thing, um, and you need to slow that down and let people understand it, live in the moment, understand the stakes. Right, and you did that beautifully. You made you made uh, him somebody who uh, had her wincing, had her you know had yeah. the hair on the back of her neck raised. And at the same time, yeah. she knew, uh, you know, <laughs> she didn't know what side he was on. It turned out it was interesting what side he ended up being on. And and, right. then, and then you go ahead and give them an opportunity to essentially come at each other and, you know, best person standing. So That's right. And, you know, and, and from her previous encounter with him, I didn't want to create a character where she never loses you know, that she can vanquish all, you know, one person against 12 guys and she and he or she knocks them all out every time in every book, you know, it's just never a match. So the first encounter with him, he beats her easily. And was, she's physically, you know, and from a fighting point of view, she's just not a match for him and she knows that. But the great thing about Atlee is she learns from her failures. So she knows that in a one-on-one fight, she can't do it the same way again because the result will be the same. She's going to lose, and in this instance, the second encounter, she was going to die. So she approached it from a different way, and she did it in a very unorthodox way that increased her strength and robbed him of his. And that was the only way she could see to vanquish him, and so she went for it. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that was a, a real bravo moment. I also uh, I liked the way you... Um, the David Roth character kind of came alive to me, especially 
in, in their travails to actually, uh, you know, save him. And uh, I could tell that there was a lot of logistics that went into that scene. There are a lot. Yes, it was. Um, you know, coming into the canyon, finding him, and then coming out of the canyon, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, there are a couple of major trails from the north face and the south face of the canyon that you can take, that people can take. They're, they're arduous. They're not easy to do. Um, neither one of those was going to be available. There are some other trails that go throughout, uh, primitive and otherwise, that are not maintained, that are, it's not like climbing El Capitan with your hands, but it's not that far removed from mm. it. So this was going to be a difficult climb out, which is the, really the only way they could go you know, up to the north rim of the canyon. Um, and I wanted to show that, you know, I've always had great respect for, like, UN uh, weapons inspectors, inspectors of WMDs. They go into these really interesting and complicated situations, and they have to work, you know, investigating and checking into WMDs with enormous pressure and knowing that the eyes of the world are upon them. So I've always really highly respected people like that. And this is what David Roth is, is what his father did as well. So he took it upon himself to go down and, you know, find something, investigate it, knowing full well that, you know, what he discovered and what he might make public could change the world. But he never sort of deviated from what he felt was his duty to do the right thing. And when Atlee, you know, and Sam Kettler get down there to bring him out, uh, they were they were sort of like the three musketeers, you know. This is our mission. We have to get out. And they were like, we have to get this guy out. We have to get this thing out uh, because a failure is not an option. You know, we have to we have to bring it home. Um, and for them to be able to help him, because look, you know, he, he's a good guy. He's in good shape, but um, he's not in his twenties anymore. So it really was a team effort. And I have to say the same thing, even even at, with all of her qualities. You know, if Sam Kettler had not been there to help her, I don't think she would have been able to get out either. So it really was a team effort. Everybody brought their strengths together and they complemented each other really well. And um, together they survived individually one by one. I don't think they would have. Oh, exactly. I mean, Sam would not be living. She would not be living. I think Sam is, I'm glad you introduced Sam in her, into her world, into her life. And I, you know, I love the fact that there might be a romance there. There is a romance there coming because yes. it makes her more of a full person, somebody who has not let herself get close to so many people because of her own history. Um, so, yeah, yes, I presume he's going to be playing a bigger part in future books. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he was, you know, he's had some damage as well. And I wanted to write about his character and talking about the issues of PTSD and how he was, you know, coping with them. You know, the statistics on this are veteran suicides. I don't know if it's 15 or 20 a day. It is some ridiculously high number that, you know, I, I grow teary at when I hear it. Um, you know, men and women who have gone overseas and fought for this country, shed blood for this country, some who have come home horribly maimed uh, and will be for the rest of their lives, and then because they don't get the help that they deserve and need, and they decide to end their own lives. So the idea of him coping with it and getting appropriate care um, and knowing that, you know, to let people know that that is available um, and that it is something that we all need to talk about and have a national conversation about was also important to put in there. And I, I love the fact that they were two, you know, they're a little bit of two lost souls. They each are damaged. They each are weakened emotionally. Um, but, you know, I think they, find, they found some common ground. They enjoy each other's company. They feel like around each other they can meet normal. 
uh, and they all have to be guarded and hidden with their motivations and trying to keep, you know, personal details there so they're comfortable with each other. And being comfortable with, with somebody else is a great thing. It may not sound like much, but God, it, in the day and age where we live, where, you know, life moves at a million miles an hour, sometimes it's just nice to sit down with somebody you're comfortable with for 10 minutes, have a conversation, take a few, couple of deep breaths, and then move on and go about, you know, getting back into the million-mile-an-hour race. Um, so sometimes it's just that simple. Right. That's why we're really here on Earth when you think about it. Yes, I would. I, that's what I think, too. <laughs> I, uh, I noticed you wrote Atlee Pine six months after you released the third book in your last series. Yes. Are you going to keep pivoting between the two? For the time being, I think so. I mean, Amy Thecker is a you know fresh, great character. I love him, and I've got a lot more room to explore with him. I just, I've um, just putting the finishing touches on the next Amos Decker. That'll be out in the spring, and um, again, takes him in a different direction. And I keep peeling away the, the the onion layers on him to show even more. You'll see a much more emotional side and a deeper side of Amos as he deals with his own devils and his own demons, um, and trying to figure out where his place is. And if he's, you know, more than just a guy with a terrific memory solves crime, or is there more to his life than that? Which I think is important is I more try to fully flesh out his character and make him really three and sometimes even four-dimensional. Um, so I think I'll we'll toggle back between those two characters for a while. And I have a lot of other series hanging out there and other things that I want to write. So it, I played as full, but, you know, it's a, it's a happy full. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, to to have two wonderful different universes to to create is is the perfect god master that every author wants <laughs> <laughs> i like that description that's good <laughs> well david i want to thank you for uh taking the time with me no same here i, I enjoy the conversation very much i love talking with uh, you know fellow writers about the process it's different for all of us and we all come up from different ways but i think at the end of the day we're just you know putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard keys and just trying to tell a story that well, you know, other people will find engaging. I mean, sometimes if you keep the goal uh, that simple and you're writing about things that interest you, uh, then I think it all works out in the end. I, I agree with you totally. Um, you, you gave us a fully, fully a layered world and some really wonderful characters to look forward to in the future. Well, thank you very much. David Baldacci's Long Road to Mercy is at your local bookstore now. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.